Good to be with you all here uh, this morning. We are in week three of the series that we have been in. It's called Love Peoria. For six total weeks, we are going to be saying Love Peoria as yourself. Yeah, and, and I think we're starting to really figure out what that could look like. And hopefully today adds to that journey that we've been on of what it looks like to love Peoria as yourself. Um, the places where we find ourselves being love. And there are several things that we believe to be true that provide the foundation for this series. And, and the first one, and this is, this is such a huge good news kind of a message, we talk about it every single week, is that we believe that our lives here on earth can actually be made new. We're, we're kind of the crazies that believe that, right? Is that, is that, you know, yeah, the spot that you're in right now, okay, that's fair. We all live. But we believe that if there are pieces of brokenness in your life, that those pieces can be restored. That if there's areas of hurt and pain and sorrow in your life, that there can actually, on this earth, there can be joy that fills those voids. And we believe that this is all made possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we talk a whole lot about that you know, around Easter time, but we still like talking about it every day because the fact that he rose again means that in this life, we ourselves can rise again and in a way be born the first time from our mothers and then almost in some kind of crazy spiritual and yet real way, be born again into a new life, into a life of purpose and hope and love that transcends and exists beyond perhaps the outside circumstances that take place around us. And that's why we, we talk about that good news here at Reachway. We begin every single time we gather with that good news because that's the gospel, friends. And we like to lead with that because that's why we're here. That's the hope that we have is that there is a kingdom, there is a world that is existing in this world called the kingdom of God where love is highly valued, where justice is highly valued, not greed, not selfishness, but love and justice and equality and generosity, these things that we believe, regardless of where you find yourself in this life, regardless of zip code or neighborhood or present family or friend circle circumstance or job or you name it, that hope can find itself right there. And in fact, Jesus and his love meets us in those areas. Now, we believe that, that someone who wants to say yes to this, this new way of life, this good news, hopefully they come to a couple of crossroads, and we believe that these are really important crossroads and decisions for them to come to. The first is kind of acknowledging, yeah, I'm probably kind of going down my own path. And saying for the first time in a significant moment, I am going to decide to follow Jesus instead of perhaps the person or ideology, or system that I find myself following. Now, this is a decision that, that we make at one particular moment. I made mine July of 2010. And uh, 
It's a moment I can think back on. But I can also think back on moments, perhaps like you, where every single day I need to get up out of bed and I need to wake up and say, but today I'm following Jesus too. But today I'm also saying no to the ideologies. And I'm also saying no to the negative people in my life. And I'm also saying no to the habits and the hurts and the hangups that are bringing me down and taking away from the beautiful and full life that God wants to give me, saying daily I'm following Jesus and not that thing or that thing or that thing. And this life of following Jesus, this, this life of being a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the cornerstone of that is love. And that's why we've been talking about it so far. We're going to talk about it again, what it looks like to be love and we're going to talk about it for a few more weeks, but we, you know, we talk about it a lot because it's the love that God has for each and every one of us that makes this new life possible. And we read about how Jesus himself prioritizes this love so greatly. Jesus is asked at one point in his ministry, what is the greatest commandment? And he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to talk about love. And in this series, Love Peoria, Love Peoria as Yourself, week one, we talked about how it was that command right there, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't this mic drop of a moment that Jesus provides us in his ministry. We went in our Bibles all the way back to some of the first pages in the book of Leviticus, where there are all of these laws and there are all of these conditions and all of these Jewish customs and laws. But we read that God said that to the nation of Israel so many thousands of years before Jesus really reminds us what the two greatest commandments are. Love God. Love others. Last week, we were joined by Pastor Gary Velasquez of Divergent City Church. Divergent City Church is, is a new church that's coming to the south side neighborhood of Peoria, and Pastor Gary is the planting pastor of it. Kind of how we're a new, ch new church, they're a new church. And he joined us and talked about that you are the light of the world. And... Then a few days later, we were, I want to show you this beautiful picture. Oh, this beautiful picture of, you know, that's our church, right? And, uh, and that's our parking lot filled with you volunteering your time, filled with those precious children from our community and their parents and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles and their caregivers. And for two hours, we literally lit up this neighborhood. <laughs> That's a picture from across the street. A couple, of, uh, a couple of you sent me pictures of even farther away talking about how we can see this light for blocks. Isn't that fun? But then I also like to believe that we were the light of the world that, that Jesus asks us to be, um, that, that Pastor Gary reminded us last week, is that you're supposed to shine. And that the thing that allows you to shine, the source of our brightness, is Christ. He uses, Gary, Pastor Gary, used this perfect analogy of how a light bulb, just a light bulb, doesn't produce any brightness. And he said it's the same with us. Is that us, just us, 
We don't necessarily produce any brightness. We need to be linked up with a source. That light bulb needs to get plugged into electricity. Pastor Gary said we need to continue to be plugged in to the love of God so that we can shine bright as well. And church, I think we did that. And I think it matters to this community as well. And I'm looking forward to us being able to continue to, to be the light, whether it's here together in a parking lot or whether it's wherever you are, that you would be the light of the world. But today we talk about another concept. We talk about another way where we are the light where we are. And we're actually going to be reading a verse in, in just a couple of seconds from um, that same exact passage where it talks about you are the light of the world. Uh, but we're just going to be reading what comes just a sentence before. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you uh, to turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have your own Bible, in one of the chair racks by your feet, there are Bibles sitting there. You are more than welcome to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible of your own, one of those Bibles is our gift to you. So make sure you write your name on the front cover. And if you're going to be following along with one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 1,505. But before we get to what we're going to be reading, I want to set up the context of this passage. This passage comes to us in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And if you have been going to church for a while, then you're perhaps very familiar with Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is, as we read him to be, sitting on a mountainside and just teaching these crowds of people. If you were to read that entire Sermon on the Mount, then Jesus says several times, you have heard it said before, but I say to you. Jesus works through several pretty hot-button issues like adultery and anger and murder and things like that. And he works through this list and he says, I know you have been living one way before, but I'm going to give you even newer eyes. I'm going to give you even more fresh eyes. It's in this Sermon on the Mount where we get things like the Lord's Prayer, where we get that teaching you might be familiar with, even the, the, the language of treasures in heaven. Perhaps you're familiar with that teaching. You've heard it in church before. Uh, this idea of not worrying about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. You might be familiar with that teaching. And this idea of seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. All of these kind of phrases that people talk about when they're following Jesus for a while, we get that in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a huge teaching, and we draw from it a lot. But before we get to another one of those teachings, I want us to understand what Jesus did and the environment that Jesus is in before he says those particular words. And this is why I want to do this, is because when you, and this is for the good or for the bad or for whatever, but when you're around certain people, you speak a certain, certain language. You know what I'm saying? When you're at work, you speak the language that you need to speak at work. I'm not talking about Spanish or French or English. I'm talking about, uh, you know, the tasks on the list or the different people, perhaps they're um, a boss of yours or an employee of yours. You speak to people differently depending on who they are. 
And it's important for us to understand the people that Jesus is speaking to in order for us to better understand the words that he then eventually speaks. We read in the first couple of sentences of Matthew chapter 5 that he's sitting on a mountainside and that there are people making up crowds from all different cities from across the region. Now, we don't have the names. (laughs) They didn't take attendance, right? (laughs) So we don't know the actual stories that are represented there, but we know enough to know this, is that there might have been some people in that crowd who had heard him talk before. Because Jesus was at this for a little bit, And there might have been some people in that crowd who heard him talk once, and they say, I want to hear him talk again. So I'm going to follow him up that mountain. There might have been people in that crowd who were physically healed by Jesus. And man, if if Jesus is able to perform such a miracle in your life, man, I think I'd follow him around too. And I'd want to hear more of what he would have to say. People followed Jesus up a mountainside, I think, regardless of who's in the crowd, they've heard him before, they were healed by him, who knows? They want to be healed by him, who knows? I think we can know this much, though, is that if they followed him up a mountainside, then they probably needed something from him, right? Or they were looking for something more. Perhaps they got a taste and they wanted a little bit more, or they were looking to be healed, or they were looking for this word, this this, this emotion, this feeling, they were looking for hope. And, and we sang about that earlier. Um, looking for hope. And perhaps Jesus on this mountainside could provide it. Jesus completely, when he enters into the Sermon on the Mount, reframes the religious conversation. So I'm, I'm still in those first couple of sentences of Matthew where he's, he's on the mountainside and, and he's speaking to this diverse group of people that are looking for something. They're probably looking for hope. Now, who looks for hope? It's people who don't have it yet. You with me? So these could have been people who financially just weren't there, orphans, widows, lonely, people who were looking for hope in all the wrong places, still couldn't find it. And Jesus knows that. And so he enters into what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. What Jesus is doing is he's going through the labels. He's going through the categories. And I'm going to read a couple of them. And you're going to see just the type of people that Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a big setup for what we're going to be talking about, but I think it's important for us to know. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it could mean a lot of things. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who to their inner core are fully dependent on God. If we sat down with the phrase poor in spirit, that's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are those who forget the, 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 the fanfare and the circumstance and the pomp and everything that exists out here, blessed are those who, when you got down to their core, they were fully dependent on God. 
when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are able to recognize the deep and hurtful suffering in this world. The one who has eyes to see that, man, I see people coming in and out of the synagogue. I see people coming in and out of church. And there is a joy of the Lord, and it is our strength. But I still look around, and I still see some hurt that we need to be mindful of. Jesus says, blessed are you, the person that to your core recognizes that things are not quite as Jesus wants them to be. And so you're working to see them done. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, Jesus is saying, I love this one. Blessed are those who honor God in such a way to where their honor becomes a deep sense of self-control. So this is actually, if we go back into the Greek and the Latin translations, this is where we get our word cautious. Blessed are those who are not fearful in their caution, but just honor God in such a way to where they remain self-controlled, where their language, they're not known as someone who flies off the handle. <laughs> you with me? Uh, they're, not, they're not known as someone who just holds these grudges. They are self-controlled, and it comes from this deep honor that they have for God. I say those three examples from the Beatitudes to say this. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people that didn't fit into the normative religious system of the day. The Jewish religious system of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, which is where Jesus was in this time, was are you able to get the outward stuff down? Were you at the synagogue three times a day to pray? Did you have the right robe on? Did you say the right words? Did you fast during an appropriate amount during this particular season? Did you give enough finances to the temple? Did you sacrifice enough monetary things? Now, you can't fit into that religious system if you can't afford the clothes that you need to wear. You with me? If, if you can't, that, that, that sacrifice that you've got to give it's that sacrifice or your family. Well, which one are you going to choose? Is feeding your family or making sure that Joe Schmo over there in the temple sees that you're a good little religious person? And enough years of this, you start getting two groups of people, and we can call those two groups of people us, temple. I'm not saying us. I'm saying group one and group two, us versus them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the them. He's talking to the people that are looking for hope and they didn't find it in the temple because they didn't fit a category of people who were able to be in the temple. So that's why they followed Jesus up on a mountainside. <laughs> what? And then he calls blessed those who have never been called a blessing before. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus calls blessed those people who are persecuted. Those people who in their lives experience hatred. Now, Jewish culture of that day would say, 
if you're experiencing some kind of complication in your life, that means that a prior generation of your family lineage must have sinned. And so your persecution is coming from a place of sin that perhaps your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents did. And so, man, I feel bad for you that you're experiencing this thing in life. Your persecution is coming from a past mistake. Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted because the anger that is coming your way is from this world. There is a God who's ready to take that away. And there is a God who is ready to restore and reframe the conversation around your persecution. Yeah. So he's got a captive audience. And then he says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He is speaking to that lowly group of people looking for hope. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. So we're going to spend the rest of our morning talking about, well, what does that mean? (laughs) What does Jesus mean by saying salt? Before we understand what Jesus means by saying that, we need to understand that in this phrase right here, Jesus is saying two things that we need to pay attention to. He's saying, you are this, but there is a potential for you to not become this. Do you see him saying that? Is that salt can lose its saltiness. Now, we're going to talk about what he means in just a minute, but for now, we need to understand that Jesus is saying, you are this, or to some, you can become this, but you need to understand. You can also unbecome that. You you cannot become it. You can lose your saltiness. And this is also quite profound when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Not the salt of your household, necessarily. Not the salt of your village, necessarily. But Jesus is opening up the possibilities, once again, of this group of people who found themselves on the bottom of the totem pole for so long that you are the salt. You are something of the entire world. You want to talk about possibilities being opened up for you? Deal with the fact that you are something for this entire planet. And that's what Jesus says to us this morning. And he says, once again, don't let it go to waste. Don't let it go to waste. So, for us, once again, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount before, this is just a reminder to us, right? Maybe you've heard, you are the salt of the earth a hundred times. Today will be your hundred and first time. (laughs) For us, it's a reminder. For them, this is a game changer. This is a message of hope where this dude on a mountainside is telling me that I have something to offer to the entire world. So let's talk about what he means. Uh, We're going to be learning from a guy named William Barclay this morning. Uh, He is no longer with us. He passed away in 1978. 
but he is what we call a theologian, and he is someone who writes these things called commentaries. He reads scripture, he studies a whole lot of other people who have studied scripture, and then he writes about it. So we're going to be reading out of William Barclay's Gospel of Luke commentary. The reason that we're reading out of his Gospel of Luke commentary is because Jesus talks about how we are the salt of the earth in other gospel accounts as well, and Luke happens to be one of them. And he identifies three primary reasons for salt in ancient Jerusalem that he also believes crosses over to what it means when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth today, in 2018, here in the United States, Peoria, whatever. So we're going to talk about those three things. The first one is this, is that salt is supposed to flavor the world. And I am straight up reading out of this book, okay? So let's just listen to what he has to say. Salt was also used as flavoring. Food without salt can be bland. Christians, then, must be the one who bring flavor into life. Ah. The Christianity which acts like a shadow of gloom and a wet blanket is not true Christianity. Christians are the people who, by their courage, by their hope, by their cheerfulness, and their kindness, bring a new flavor into life. Is that not just going to hit you this morning? That's what it means to flavor your world. And I know that it's a cliche. I know that it's a cliche to say that um, people should be able to tell if you follow Jesus or not. Have you ever heard that cliche before? When you've been trying to hype someone up, you've said, people should be able to tell if you follow Christ or not. They should just know the difference. And it's a cliche, and so we drown it out. It's true, though. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the phrase that really hit me was a Christianity that acts like a shadow of gloom and a wet blanket is not true Christianity. That nailed me in the head. That is not a true Christianity. Our flavor is to come from our courage, our joy, our hope. Ah. Now, that cliche is true, but salt also does other things for us. So the second one is this. It helps things grow. So I'm going to read out here. Uh, before we get into here, salt was actually used as a mineral that farmers and people who garden and grew things actually put on the ground and cultivated it in with the soil because the minerals in the salt took away some of the toxins. Does that make sense? So, so they, they used salt for that, took away some of the toxins, and it allowed things to grow. And, and William Barclay knows that that's how they did it in ancient Jerusalem. And so we, we we're going to read this for us is how we are the salt of the earth. We help things grow. This is what he says. Salt was used on the land. It was used to make it easier for all good things to grow. Mm -hmm. It is the Christian's role to make it easier for people to be good and harder to be bad. <laughs> we all know people whose company there are certain things we would not 
and could not do. And equally, we all know people whose company we might well stoop to the things which by ourselves we would not do. There are fine people in whose company it is easier to be brave and cheerful and good. As Christians, we must carry with us the breath of heaven in which the fine things flourish and the evil things shrivel up. Man, oh man, we need to exist so that it is easier for people to do good things. And our existence should not discourage. I don't think Barclay is saying that our existence should mean that we should be walking around saying, you shouldn't do that bad thing or you shouldn't do that bad thing. Because what is that? It's a shadow of gloom and it's a wet blanket. But I think what he is saying is, is that when you exist in someone's life, you should be loving them and living in their life, in relationship with them in such a way to where when they are trying to do something good, you are there to encourage it. You are there to help them get through that next step of getting into a better place of life that we should be there for people and be there encouraging and helping people who are just trying to get better. Yes. And the third one is this. Hard to believe this one is actually my favorite. <laughs> They're all so good. You're the salt of the earth. What's the third thing that that means? That we are to preserve the earth. First and foremost, salt is, was a preservative. Still is, but definitely was back then. When you needed to preserve food, or a, particularly back then, a piece of meat for a long time that you just covered it in salt. And so we check the back of our, uh, our labels today and look at that sodium line, right? It's because we still use sodium as a preservative. So this is what this is what Barclay has to say. Salt was used as a preservative. It is the earliest of all preservatives. The, Greek, the Greeks used to say that salt could put a new soul into dead things. I really like that. Without salt, a thing was putrefied and went bad. With it, freshness was preserved. That means that true Christianity must act as a preservative against the corruption of the world. As individual Christians, we must be the conscience of our peers. And the church must be the conscience of the nation. As Christians, we must be such that in our presence, no doubtful language will be used. No questionable stories told. No dishonorable action suggested. We must be like a cleansing antiseptic in the circles in which we move. The church must fearlessly speak against all evils and support all good causes. It must never hold its peace through fear or favor of anyone, oh my word, friends. Oh, the midterms are a few days away. And that is the only thing I'm going to say about that. We are to represent the likeness of Christ in all things. 
And we must be extremely careful in the systems and the people and the powers and principalities that we are putting our hope and trust in. And the reason I bring up the midterms is because that's not where our hope lies. Thank you. I want to be clear. I'm not going to tell you, vote, don't vote. I'm just going to say that's not where your hope is. That's That's what I'm here to say. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for or if you should vote or if you should not vote. I am here to tell you that's not where your hope is because you're the salt of the earth and you are working on behalf of a different way of life and you are working on behalf of a different way of thinking where it is your physical presence and your physical presence alone that has the potential to help things grow, that has the potential to bring flavor to the circles you find yourself in that has the potential to preserve the goodness of the kingdom of God despite of what's happening around us. But if there's anything else that Jesus is doing when he says these words, this is what Jesus is doing. Keep in mind, once again, the audience that is listening to this. He is restoring purpose in a people that had it taken away from them. He is restoring, you you see, he, he goes to this people that have been on the bottom of the totem pole for so long, and he says, you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you are the salt of the earth. You have the potential to be the thing that brings flavor to anywhere you are, to be the thing that helps good things grow wherever you are, for you to be the person that exists to preserve the goodness of the kingdom of God. And you can imagine that the light bulbs would start going off in the minds of the people in that crowd. And they would be saying, I'm following that guy. I'm not following that system that has pushed me out. I'm not following that ideology that has said I cannot belong. I'm following that guy who says each and every one of you has purpose. Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who are going to follow me to their core. I'm not concerned if your life gets a lot of attention from onlookers. That is what Jesus is saying, is that he is not concerned if a lot of people look at you and say, oh, good for that person. He's looking for people that when it gets to their core, they're following Jesus. Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, and when he tells us that we are the salt of the earth, he is saying, I created you with love. And therefore, you have much love to offer. Because we believe what? That everyone matters. Jesus is saying, your little, your little salt, your little flavor is a whole lot in my book, which is why we go all in. Because we believe that he can do a lot with our little. And Jesus is saying, I've been counting on you. You can do this. So we got to be resilient. So church, to you, I say those who feel far from God and those who feel near, those who have been following him for some time and those who might be beginning that journey today, 
those who are ready to get out there and those who are weary, I say this to you, you are the salt of the earth. And in the name of bringing flavor, helping things grow, and seeing things preserved, be an advocate. Does someone in your life need a boost to take that next step towards the full life that Christ is offering them? Help them. <laughs> Does someone need an actual thing to keep going? Give it to them. Where are the lonely and the tired that surround you? Be with them. Acknowledge their existence. Where are the needs around you? Find them and fill them. Or see to it, get, see to it that it gets filled. I want to open up some imagination for you, just real quick. Be an advocate. You, as an individual, you are an advocate. But I also want you to know that by the very nature that you are in this room means that at least for today, you are a part of the Reachway Church family. And we, as a group, are also an advocate. So what can happen is that you can go out there and you're advocating as individuals, workplaces, families, friends, wherever you find yourself, you're advocating. You're seeing things that we can't see because we're not all in the same place at the same time. And then you come back to your church family and you say, hey, we need to advocate for this person. It's only gonna cost $20. They just need this thing. And then if they can get that thing, the ceiling's gonna be removed and then their life is just gonna take off. That's who we are as the church. So if you're out there and you're thinking, I can't myself provide that full need. How many times have we talked about this? Then you give what you can and you get other people to get on board because they'll notice and they'll get involved too and then those needs get met, y'all. Come on. So that's what it means to be an advocate. Where is there needing some more flavor in your life? Be it. Where is there a ceiling or a barrier that exists in someone's life where if they could just get over that hump, if they could just get past that thing, help them out. Be an advocate. And you're also advocating on behalf of the church when you are out there. I'm sure we're all not wet blankets, right? <laughs> and we're not clouds of doom and gloom and despair. No, we have the hope of Christ in us. We have the love of Christ flowing from us. And all of these things, you might be thinking, Matt, you know, Seth, you, you, did a, you did a great job at using charismatic inflection properly, right? <laughs> and, you did, and, and you did a great job at, did a great job at presenting your notes and, you know, good for you, but I'm not convinced. Well, this is what I have to say. I'm not here to convince you. I'm here to get you in a position where you can see it for yourselves. That the love of Christ is so real and so palpable and so present amongst us that you don't need someone to say it's there. You just know it's there. 
And so that's why we set, a time, set time aside to respond 